0: Thank you for listening to the Sharon Church Podcast. If you would like to know more about the church, please visit us at SharonChurch.com. Now, we hope you learn from and enjoy today's message. If you grab your Bibles, turn to Matthew chapter 5, Matthew 5, we got one more Carly, Matthew chapter 5 is where we'll be this morning, Uh, we're gonna continue our study through the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus calls it the good news of the kingdom, we've come to call it the Sermon on the Mount, Matthew chapter 5 verse 6, blessed, happy, congratulations to those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they shall be satisfied. All right, so here's, here's where I'm gonna go. Just bear with me, because you've ruined all of it. Uh, for the majority of us, and maybe just for me, I find myself desiring things that are not good for me. Anybody else find yourself doing that? Maybe it's not food, maybe it's uh, TV and music, I don't know what it is, but I find myself that my desire, I mean, hands down, I will never, ever choose kale over Chick-fil-A, never. I never will, never. Uh, my desire will always be for those things. It's like as in humanity, our desires are often for the things that harm us more than the things that will help us or heal us. No matter who tells us how good kale is for you and broccoli and asparagus, no matter who tells you that oatmeal satiates your stomach in the morning so you don't need as much to eat, whoever tells you all of that, if you're giving a plate of pancakes, hot pancakes with melted butter and syrup on it, Most of us, in our right minds, are not choosing the oatmeal, right? We desire things that hurt us more than things that heal or help us. Theologians have come to call this distorted desire. C.S. Lewis talks about disordered loves and he calls them distorted desires, that our desires have become distorted. So for us, like when you think about your life, when we think about sin, we think about wrong behavior, right? We think about wrong thinking, But what it comes down to is this, sin never begins with wrong information or wrong behavior. Sin always begins with wrong desire. That's where sin comes from, it's always that. And we live in a world that is molded around appealing to our distorted desires. It is why Matthew McConaughey sells Buicks and not a frazzled single mom, am I right? Because with Matthew McConaughey, you're like, man, I wanna be that cool. Like, how do I do that? But if it's single mom trying to raise three kids and maintain four jobs who hasn't brushed her hair in a week and might have showered and uses leave-in conditioner and shampoo, you're like, I, I don't think I want that Buick. In. I don't think I want that Lincoln anymore. I don't want it. So the world has appealed to this, but it all comes down to us of having wrong desires. This is how the enemy has always worked from the beginning of time. If you've been around for any, any extended period of time, you know what I'm gonna do right now. I'm gonna to go to Genesis, and you love it. You love to hate it, but I'm gonna to go to Genesis because I think it opens up a lot for us. So in Genesis, God creates the world. Everything is as it should be. Everything is rightly ordered. Everything is very good. That's a very Jewish way of saying it's perfect. It's, it's whole, it's complete. And in Genesis 3, we read of this serpent, this enemy who has come in. Genesis chapter 3, verse 1. There's a serpent who is more crafty, more subtle, more conniving than any other beast of the field the Lord God had made. And he said to the woman, did God actually say you shall not eat of any tree in the garden? So he poses a question to manipulate desire. Is that what God said? Now look what Eve says in verse 2. And the woman said to the serpent, "No, no. we may eat of the fruit of the trees in the garden. God had said you may eat of all of them except for one. But God said, You shall not eat of the fruit of the tree that's in the midst of the garden. Her knowledge is right. She has right theology. Her doctrine is accurate. What God said, she knows. And she takes it a step further. And so now she's putting more boundaries in place to protect her behavior, her actions. She says, Neither shall you touch it, lest you die. God didn't say that. That's a little bit distorted. But I think what she's trying to do is protect herself from it. But the serpent said to the woman, You will not surely die. God's lying to you, you won't die. Problem is that God knows. When you eat of it, your eyes will be opened and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. So now look at the desires of the woman. Right knowledge, right behavior. When the woman saw that the tree was good for food, a delight to the eyes, and the tree was to be desired to make one wise, she took of its fruit and ate. She also gave some to her husband who was with her and he ate. No matter how much she knew No matter how much time she had spent with God, literally in the garden, no matter how many boundaries she had put in place, her desire won the day. Can you relate to that? It's like no matter how much Bible you read, no matter how much you study, no matter how many classes you go to, no matter how many letters are after your name in your theological degrees, it's like your desire always wins the day. No matter what you know about what causes you health problems, you still run to that thing because it's desire. The problem for us is not knowledge and it's not behavior, our issue is desire. And I say all that to say this, our distorted desire has distorted Matthew five, verse six. The way that we view our world and our view our own hearts and desire have messed with how we interpret Matthew five, six. I wanna read it again and I want us to read it carefully. And then what I'd like to do is illuminate, I think, how we've gotten it wrong. And because of that, the effects of what's happened for us. Matthew chapter five, verse six, blessed, happy, congratulations to those who hunger and thirst. The idea here is like a desperate desire who can't live without righteousness for they shall be satisfied, for they shall be satisfied. Here's what we do in Western culture. We are uh, very results-driven kinds of people, aren't we? Like, we want to know what's in it for me. For some of you, even this morning, the reason you decided to come to church was because there, in some way you told yourself there was something in it for you. Well, it's because you kept your wife happy, or you kept your mama, your daddy happy, it was to make your grandma proud. So we go to well, what's in it for me? What's, what's the thing for me? What do I get out of this, this is what we're asking. And so when Jesus makes a statement, blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they shall be satisfied, we reverse engineer that verse, and we say, if you want satisfaction, you should hunger and thirst for righteousness. And many of you are like, yeah, I don't, what's, I don't, what's the problem? I understand that's exactly what it should be saying. Well, let me just right off the bat tell you this. I am not preaching a sermon this morning About how um, you're right to search for satisfaction, the problem is you're doing it in unholy ways. I'm not preaching a sermon on how you know what your problem is, is that you've been trying, you've been looking for love in all the wrong places. That's what I'm saying. What I'm saying is that the problem is that we desire satisfaction. I think that's the problem, I think that's our issue. The issue is that we were not made to desire satisfaction. And I know you're already confused, you're like, this guy's crazy, I'm out of here. Let me help you. I want, I want us to help. I want to help you here this morning. I believe the pursuit of satisfaction is how the enemy has distorted. It is the distortion of the enemy. Back to Genesis chapter three. This woman had desire, right? to be godly. Eve had desire. And then the enemy comes in and distorts that desire and says, the way to that end is sinfulness. That's the way to that end. But our issue was not knowledge. It was not nearness to God. It was not behavior. It was distorted desire. And the distortion in this verse is to make us think that we should pursue satisfaction. But that's not a biblical idea. That is a worldly idea. The very world, the air that we breathe in our world is to pursue satisfaction. As Americans, we believe it is an inalienable right of humanity. We believe in a right to life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. And we've said these are God endowed rights, these are given by God. That we have a right to life, we have a right to freedom. And we have a right to the pursuit of happiness. 2023. Is the United States of America a happy place? Are we full of happy people? How's that pursuit gone? Has that gone well? We're free to it. We believe that God's given us that right for life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. Or contentment, satisfaction. Here's the problem. There's no way to quantify satisfaction. There's no way to quantify happiness or contentment. But as people who want results, we begin to make our own quantifications of what contentment and satisfaction is. So here's what we do. We look at people that we think seem satisfied and content and happy. We build our life and we look at these people and the people we see are typically very attractive with very straight white teeth. They are people who um, are well-dressed, And they are people who seem like they are making progress in the world. They have advanced, they have accomplishments. Think about people right now, you're like, oh, that person is so content. The way the world communicates that is an attractive, smiling, accomplished people. And so then we orient our lives around becoming those people. And social media has only existed to exacerbate the problem. Because we see pictures of people like, ah, I wanna be be a husband like that. Look what he does for his wife all the time. And the wife's like, all the time? That's not what happens. So we set out to become these people only to find ourselves never attaining it. So then we say, okay, then maybe contentment is found just in progressing. I just have to keep attaining the next step. This is what satisfaction looks like. So students, here's, here's how it works for you. You want to be content and happy and you're not now and you tell your parents all the time how unhappy you are. We get it. We understand. And so you think, listen, when I, when I get to the next grade, when I get to the next school, when I, get, when I graduate, then I'll be satisfied. And then all of us in here who have graduated will tell you, no, 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 you, no, you won't. No, you won't. It gets worse from there. I think once I graduate, I will be uh, satisfied. Once I make it out of JV and into varsity sports, then I'll be satisfied. If I just make that college team and get that NIL deal, then I'll be satisfied. 14-year-olds, are like, man, I can't wait till I can drive. Then I'll just drive myself wherever I want. I want to eat mama's food, I'll just go to McDonald's. No, you won't. Once I get my driver's license, it will be better. Once I get into college, once I get that job, it would be better. If I just had a girlfriend, my life would be better. No, it won't, no, it won't, no, it won't. But adults, we're not that different. What's the next step, what's the next progress? Once I get to that next thing, then I will be happy. Once I get a promotion, once I get that raise, maybe I just need a new job, maybe I need a new career, maybe I need a convertible, I just need that. Whatever that next thing is to prove some sort of status or progress, then I'll be satisfied, then I will be content. For some of us it was, hey, once I get married, then I'll be content and satisfied. Is that going well for you? Well, you were Jerry Maguired into believing that someone would complete us. So you got married and what you found was you're not satisfied, that person is not satisfying you, you are not any more content than you were when you were single. So then it's okay well maybe my next wife maybe she'll be content How's that going Well maybe be the third one then I maybe then maybe then I'll find what I need And then we're like, like maybe maybe what the problem is I'm not satisfied cuz we need kids Maybe we'll have kids And our children they will satisfy the deepest longings of our souls No they won't I love my kids Good gracious am I not satisfied No, it doesn't bring contentment. Kids don't, a new job. Many of us here today, you're like, when I retire, then I'll be satisfied. How's your 401k? Is that going well? We have a striving for satisfaction and contentment, but we never find it. And here's the paradox. Everything we think in our minds that should mean contentment and satisfaction, even for a culture, we have in our world. We have it now. We have steadily rising income, we have technological advances, we have access to information like never before. No question you have can go unanswered. Siri answers it, Alexa answers it, Google answers it. You have access to knowledge like we've never had before. Social media for all of its problems creates connection with people immediately around the world. It creates connection, we never knew we could do this. We have access to healthcare that's increasing Our entertainment removes any boredom we've ever had in our lives. We're never bored ever again. All the things we thought would bring us contentment, and yet we have increasing substance abuse. We have a record rise in suicide rates, particularly among middle school girls. We have rising anxiety and depression, the deterioration of a nuclear family, and we've lost complete trust in any leadership ever. So this pursuit of happiness, of contentment and satisfaction, it's a failure. We are not more content and satisfied. It's like we have everything we ever thought we would ever need, and yet we're more sad and anxious and fearful and angry than we have ever been as a people. Pastor in New York named John Tyson says this way, he says, as a culture, we are always eating, but never full. We're always eating and yet we're never satisfied. Just one more, just the next step. You think you reach some threshold financially only to find you need another 30 grand to help you with now, you, what is your new uh, means and way of living? We're never satisfied. As a people, we are never satisfied. It's because we've been told the desire of every human heart, the right of every human on the planet is to pursue happiness. And as as Christians, we've bought into the same lie. We've bought into the same thing. So the way we read Matthew 5, 6 is that Jesus came to bring you satisfaction. No, he did not. But what we do then is we bring in the ways of the world. We bring in this desire for satisfaction into our relationship with Jesus and we bring it into the church. We were taught this passage in a way that says, no, 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 pursue satisfaction, but do it in a holy way. So, for those of us 90s kids who grew up in the the youth group in the 90s, we devoted our lives to finding satisfaction, happiness, and contentment through serving the Lord. And it cost us everything. We burned CDs. We broke up with our girlfriends after camp. We gave our hearts and lives to the church only to find this promise of satisfaction never came. We were told, your girlfriend won't satisfy you, that music won't satisfy you, those drugs won't satisfy you. You know what will is Jesus. And so what we did was, we said, yeah, yeah, I need satisfaction, so now my drug of choice is Christianity. That will bring me satisfaction. Instead of pursuing Jesus, we pursued satisfaction through the vending machine of Jesus. If you just push the right buttons, then you'll be satisfied. And for many of us, we are here today frustrated, disgruntled, feeling like God did not come through on the promise he made for us. Can you relate to that? So people are abandoning their faith, they're tearing it all apart. But the problem was never God, the problem was always our distorted desires. God will not be used for your happiness not a toy to play with. We've adopted these ways into the church. And so for some of us, what happened was in middle school and high school, we learned you need to act a certain way to be accepted. And when you're accepted, then you'll find contentment, right? When you find that group of people, you'll find satisfaction. And so then we found our way into a church. And what we learned was, oh, these church people, I know what they like. So I'm going to do what the church people like. That way they can all like me. And so you started to, right? You started to dress differently. You started to listen to different kinds of music, or at least you pretended you did. Um, We're Baptists, so you pretend you don't drink anymore, but you know, and so you gave up all those things. And so we decided I'm gonna be accepted by church people to find contentment. And so you've strived and strived, and you become a deacon, you became an elder, you became a pastor, only to find you were never satisfied. And here's why. Because the point of life is not your satisfaction. Because when that's the pursuit, God becomes a tool by which we get what we ultimately want. And in so doing, we become the idol. And God will not be used. We were not created to desire satisfaction. Well then, what does, you, want, you ask, what does, what does this verse even mean then? Well, I'm glad you asked. I wrote a whole sermon about it. So let me help us here this morning. If we're not created to desire satisfaction. Let's look at Matthew chapter five, verse six. Let's read it carefully. Blessed, happy, congratulations to those who desire, who hunger and thirst, desire like you desire water and bread for righteousness, for they shall be satisfied. So now the question is, all right, so I need to desire righteousness. What is righteousness? When the original hearers of this, there would have been two understandings of righteousness, two arms of it. And the first one is what we, many of us consider righteousness. It's personal holiness, right? It's right living. The word righteousness has to do with relationship. It's in the very same way that uh, you would say something like, oh, her husband did right by her. Or the, the boss, he did right by me and that he maintained, kept his promise he gave to me. Does that make sense? It's relationship. It's the idea. It's relationship. So the first way that we understand righteousness is that it's personal holiness. It's being right before God. It's having a right relationship with the Father. So blessed are those who desire, like you desire food and water to be right before God, who recognize the brokenness of our spirit, who mourn over our sin, and we desire, we hunger and thirst to be holy and righteous before God, to have a right relationship with him. Blessed are those but the second arm of this is where we find some issue for us. The second arm of uh, this idea of righteousness they would have understood is what we're going to call justice. Do you ever look at the world and you all you see is how broken the world is? Does that happen for you? Like when you look out at the world and you see that man, things are not right. At the end of Genesis two, uh, 1, God says, everything is very good. And then sin enters, and we don't hear that phrase again, that the world is good, is broken. There's brokenness there. There's, uh, the world has lost the right relationship with the Father. And we see it in all sorts of injustices all around our world. And some of us politically have turned a blind eye to some injustice in the name of a political party. But what's happening here is that we need uh, to see the world as broken. This is what the Bible calls justice. It's justice. Now, this is different from you being angry that things are wrong. This is a grieving that things are wrong. This is not you having a broken agenda. This is about you having a broken heart. This is not looking at the world and being upset and mad at people in their view of sexuality or finances. This is your heart grieves over it. Like you're brokenhearted about it. It's in the very same way that if you love your children, and your children continue to find themselves making decisions, whether as as kids or as adults, making decisions that lead them away of of God's plan for them, you see it. It's the very same way that there's some anger towards them, but there's also, oh, I just hate it, because she's mine, it's my daughter, and she's doing this, and I hate it for her. My heart is grieved when we speak righteousness, we're speaking of desiring right relationship individually and that things would be made right in the world. Again, not a broken heart, but a broken agenda. So we have to do this in context. Otherwise, thirsting and hungering for righteousness turns into some um, moral ambition and it turns into some political ambition. It's not what this is. Let's put it all in context. Matthew chapter five, verse three, Jesus begins his epic sermon with blessings And the first one is blessed are those who are poor in spirit. You can't pick and choose these blessings. They all build one on another. Here's the foundational one. Blessed are those who recognize they are bankrupt in their spirit. They've got nothing to offer. And how does that turn into hunger and righteousness? Well, if you don't recognize your own brokenness, you will begin to condemn and judge the brokenness of the world. But in recognizing our own bankruptcy of spirit, It then takes us to verse four. Blessed are those who mourn. What do you do with your brokenness? Well, we mourn. We mourn our brokenness. We mourn what sin has done to our hearts and our souls. We mourn that we continue to choose the ways of the world over the ways of the kingdom. Then fresh life is breathed back in. You're comforted, which then leads us to meekness. And with meekness, power under control, Knowing the word of God, knowing what is right, and then carrying it in the right way, that leads us to hungering and thirsting for righteousness in a way that breaks our hearts, doesn't just break our comfort. Because the issue for many of us, the reason why we feel anxious about the world is because it makes us uncomfortable, not because it grieves the heart of God. The reasons why you feel upset about your sin is because it makes you look bad to other people, not because it grieves the heart of God. But blessed are those who recognize the bankruptcy of their spirit, who mourn over it, and who find themselves knowing what's right and carrying it in humility because that leads us to hungering and thirsting, a desperate desire for righteousness, for right relationship with God, both individually and in our world. Blessed are those. Congratulations to those who hunger and thirst for righteousness. Speaking of being a 90s youth group kid, we grew up um, singing worship songs, and um, one of the songs we sang was a song called Hosanna. Written by a group called Hillsong, and in this, in this song, there's the bridge that just, it's good, man, like it's really, really good. It's the prayer it should be the prayer of our hearts. And so it begins like this. Help heal my heart. Is the prayer of the song, and make it clean. This is the prayer. Heal my heart, make it clean. I'm broken in spirit, I'm poor in spirit, make it clean. Then the prayer of the song is, open up my eyes to things unseen. I think we have it on the screen. Open up my eyes to things unseen. So here's the prayer. What does hunger and thirsting for righteousness look like? It looks like this. God, heal my heart. I'm broken. I'm bankrupt in spirit, make it clean. Then open my eyes to things that I cannot see. The song continues, show me how to love like you have loved me. Break my heart for what breaks yours. This is the plea of every devoted follower of Jesus. Father, if it breaks your heart, I want it to break mine. Hungering and thirsting for righteousness, God, break my heart for what breaks yours. And then everything I am for your kingdom's cause. It breaks my heart, God, use me, whatever you need for your kingdom as I walk from earth into eternity for the rest of my life. What does it look like to hunger and thirst for righteousness? It looks like I break my heart. For what breaks yours? I'm grieved over the state of my sin. I'm grieved over the state of the world. It breaks my heart. And I desire nothing more than to see heaven come to earth. I desire nothing more than that. So our question this morning then is, what are we desiring? Because if it's satisfaction or contentment, you will miss it. If you're aiming for satisfaction and contentment, it's fleeting and you'll never hit it. But if your desire is righteousness, hunger and thirst for righteousness, that's where we find it. So then we have to ask, why don't we desire this? Why don't we desire the righteousness of God? Why are we not hungering and thirsting over it? Like why, why, why are we not coming to church if it's raining. Why are we not coming to church because it's a family Sunday and our kids get to sit with us? Why? Why do we not have this same hunger and thirst? Well, John Piper, a pastor in Minnesota, has an idea. He says, if you don't feel strong desires for the manifestation of the glory of God, it is not because you have drunk deeply and are satisfied. It is because you have nibbled so long at the table of the world. Your soul is stuffed with small things and there is no room for the great God did not create you for this. Now those of you who have teenagers and children at home, you understand this completely because you make a good dinner for them. But they have gorged themselves on goldfish and Cheez-Its. So they don't want what you've made. Like they don't want what you spent hours working on. They don't want it. It's not because they've had so much steak they just don't know they can have anymore. It's because they've become so falsely satisfied with cheeses. That's what Piper is saying. We've done this same. why don't we desire the righteousness of God? Why do we not desire things to be made right in the world? Because we've eaten of the world and we're full of it. And he continues, the greatest enemy of hunger for God is not poison but apple pie. It is not the banquet of the wicked that dulls our appetite for heaven but endless nibbling at the table of the world. So if you're to be honest this morning, do you desire the manifest presence and glory of God in a way that makes things right in the world? Do you desire that with everything that you have? In, In the ways that you are thirsty and hungry for sustenance, do we desire that? I would imagine if you're like me, no, I don't. I don't, I want things to be good. I want things to be comfortable. Like I want God to have his way as long as it doesn't cost me anything, I would love that. But I don't know that I have this desire. Again, the catch 22 is that you're not going to find contentment searching for this. And have your desires for satisfaction. Has that worked in the past? When your spouse finally confessed and apologized, did that that help you? Did that bring you contentment in your life? Or did it find you searching for more and more reasons? When you got your promotion or you finally got a divorce, when you made the team, when you graduated... It's never given us what we desired. Maybe it's because what we've been desiring is wrong. To my core, I am someone who likes to accomplish things. Like I like to check boxes, like to have things done. I really enjoy that. It's why I love math, because math, like there's nothing ambiguous about math, like it's black and white, and then when you get to the solution, you have a solution, and it's over. You did it, great job, you did it. Some of you don't understand any of that, and that's fine. So what I love now, in my older years, is I love working in my yard. That's how old I am, I like my yard. I like my grass, get off my lawn, you crazy kids. And I love that, like I love the times of the year where I can go out in my yard for a couple of hours, I run the mower, I do all the things that I need to do, and then like any good, warm-blooded American man, I sit on my porch and I look at what I just accomplished. That's what I do. And I hold a cold soda in my hand, and i just I'm look at all this look what's happened here look, look at what i have done look what i have accomplished right it's why i like organizing things i like cleaning out my garage for that reason i like it i like getting things done and i wanted to be a civil engineer so i could get things done and then god called me into ministry where nothing is ever done ever like in you need to understand in ministry there are never things that we accomplish never never And I've talked to friends to remind them like, yeah, just because now, like just because now you've got a small group that's doing this or people on your team that are doing this, listen, next week it's going to be all different. There'll be more people who need to be discipled, more people who need to be led to the Lord, more people who need to be shown what the Bible is, and it will never, ever end for you. That's how ministry is. It's never ending. There's nothing that I accomplish And yet, in the past three or four years of my life, I have never been more satisfied in God. Never. I spent a lot of my ministry career trying to accomplish things, trying to get to the next thing. Not doing it, I don't think I was doing it consciously, but subconsciously. If I just get to this, if I get this number of kids in our youth ministry, or if I can get this quality of leader, if I get this kind of music, then we'll do something, only to find myself less and less content with the Lord. And it led to some really dark things in my life. But what I've grown to learn right now is that God has broken my heart for what breaks his. I think I used to see people as projects to accomplish and now I just grieved. When you're walking through pain, it hurts me. Like when your marriage is struggling, it affects me. I hate it for you. I'm grieving over it. When I think about the number of conversations that um, our middle school staff and student staff has had to have with middle school girls who are contemplating suicide. There's nothing I can do to fix it. and It breaks my heart. Like 12-year-old girls. It hurts me. It hurts when some of you talk about the things you're having to go through with your grown children. I hate that for you. I see it in you. It grieves me. I hate the world is this way. I'm praying, come Lord Jesus, Come. For those of you who are following Jesus, you need to know, you will never arrive. There is nothing to accomplish. In following Jesus, there are no destinations, there's only a journey. And so if you think you will be satisfied by a destination, my friend, you will find yourself frustrated and angry for the rest of your life. Look at this verse again. It doesn't say blessed are those who are righteous, Blessed are those who desire it, not those who have accomplished it. So many of you, you're here this morning and for some shape or fashion, you desire, it's why you're here. You wanna be among God's people, singing songs to the Lord. You wanna be studying from his word. My friend, you have it. This is, this is that hunger and thirst. You're doing it. You're doing it, church. So the cry here is not to be righteous. It's that you would have a desire for God's will to be done, for his kingdom to be done. To come, blessed are those whose hearts break over what breaks the heart of the Father. So here's the beauty, and you know it. Some of you, you're living it right now. You've never been more content in the Lord than you are right now, and yet you've accomplished nothing. I get home most days, and Meredith asked me how my day was, and I will say, I think it was good. I don't think I got anything done, but I think it was a good day. That's what it looks like. That's what your life looks like. It's okay. You you haven't finished anything. You haven't accomplished anything. And yet, there's some otherworldly satisfaction in your soul. I have like an unsettled heart. I always have. I used to rearrange the furniture in my room twice a week just to figure out how to make this feel better. Like all those things. It's always unsettled. And when I finally got to recognizing the bankruptcy of my spirit and I mourned over it, I continued to mourn over it, I've found that I can acknowledge there's some strengths that God has given me. i put them under control. I have found a satisfaction like I've never found in my life before. And it's available to us, not at the destination, but in the journey. All right, so then the question is, because I know, I know how we are, what do I do? What do I do with it? Well, when I think about hungering and thirsting, what comes to my mind are people from the Old Testament, particularly Nehemiah. So Nehemiah is a, uh, hundreds of miles away from Jerusalem and he's heard that the walls have been taken down in Jerusalem. The wall was so important for a city back then. And he finds out that it's been torn down. And in Nehemiah chapter uh, one, verse four, he says, as soon as I heard these words of the destruction of the wall, I sat down and I wept and I mourned for days and I continued fasting and praying for the God of heaven. So what do we do? Here's what we do first. We mourn. We mourn. We mourn when the world doesn't line up with what God has designed the world to line up with. We mourn. We don't blame and complain, we mourn. And then he fasts and prays. For some of us, you wanna know why we're not desiring? It's because we're so full on the things of the world. We need to fast, which is removing something, removing food that we might desire the presence of God. So he weeps and mourns and prays. Then verse five. And I says, this is Nehemiah, O oh Lord, God of heaven, the great and awesome God who keeps covenant and steadfast love with those who fear him and keep his commandments. Let your ear be attentive and your eyes open to hear the prayer of your servant that I now pray before you. Day and night, for the people of Israel, your servants confessing the sins of the people of Israel. And you're like, yeah, I'm really good at confessing other people's sins. I got that. And then he says, which we? Hundreds of miles removed, and yet he says, we. We have sinned against you. Even I and my father's house have sinned. Verse seven, we have acted very corruptly against you and have not kept the commandments, the statutes, and the rules that you commanded your servant, Moses. First we mourn, and then we recognize our own sin. We recognize our role in it. Why is the world the way it is? Because of people like you and me, that's why. Because of our sin and brokenness. And he continues praying and he gets down to verse 10 to 11 to wrap this up. He says, oh Lord, let your ear be attentive to the prayer of your servant and to the prayer of your servants who delight to fear your name and give success to your servant today and grant him mercy. your translations say favor in the sight of this man. Who is this man? Is the king. And the next verse, Nehemiah says, and I was the cupbearer to the king. Here's the role of a cupbearer. All the cupbearer has to do is taste all of the king's food and drink to make sure it's not poisoned. That's it. Like, that's what he has to do. So if you feel like you're expendable at your job, are you expendable to like, hey, I'd rather he die? Like that, is that where we are? This is Nehemiah's role. His, his role is so expendable that he might die on his first shift. Like, all right, next guy up. And he makes this prayer, and at the end of it in verse 11, he says, God, give me favor with the king. Why would a cupbearer ever have favor with a king? He's literally there to die. Why would he have favor? But Nehemiah's heart is so broken by the things that break the Lord's heart that he mourns it, he fasts, and he prays. He grieves over his own sin, and then he says, God, I want to help. What do I do? I know I'm just a cupbearer, what do you need me to do? And he says, God, would you give me favor with the king? I wanna bring heaven to earth, what do I do? I know I've got a king, give me favor with him that he might grant me permission to go back and rebuild the wall. What does a cupbearer know about a wall? Nothing. And yet his heart is so moved by the brokenness and he wants to do something about it. So this morning, where are we today? Are you so moved by the brokenness in the world that you wanna do something about it? And I don't mean go get your guns and take care of some things. I mean, you wanna see people made whole again. Do you wanna see the brokenness in a number of different perverted ways? Do you wanna see that made whole again? You've got a son or a daughter that you're grieved over them. Here's what I would encourage you to pray God, grant me favor with my son. I know he's a teenager, thinks he knows everything. We've had a good relationship in years. God, grant me favor with him. Grant me favor with my grown daughter. Grant me favor with my boss. Grant me favor with the principal. Grant me favor with the superintendent of schools. God, I see the brokenness and I want to help. What do I do? God, grant me favor and then you find yourself in a coffee shop next to the superintendent of schools? Why would someone who does lawn care have favor with the superintendent of schools? I don't know. But I would imagine it's because they were hungering and thirsting for righteousness and God, so I'm gonna use that one, that's the one. Are we brokenhearted today? Or are you just angry? You don't like how uncomfortable some things make you and all that's coming from brokenness. It's all coming from brokenness. So then what if this morning you don't have that desire? What do we do? There's a woman named Teresa of Avila. She was a nun. And her journal was found a number number of years ago. But in this journal, she writes this prayer. Oh God, I don't love you. I don't even want to love you. But I want to want to love you. That's hungering and thirsting. Maybe you don't want to today, but maybe today the Holy Spirit says, no, but I want you to want to love me. I want you to want righteousness in the world. I want you to do away with your anger and your frustration and your political lines, and I want you to, to desire the things that I desire. Well, would you pray, God, break my heart for what breaks yours, and I'm just warning you, be warned. It's gonna change things for you. It's gonna change the way you see brokenness and change the way you see people. It's gonna change the way you feel burdens. But this is what we were made for. And in that journey, you will be satisfied. The journey of pursuing righteousness, you will be satisfied. There are no destinations in following Jesus, only journeys. Maybe you're here today and you've actually given up on church. Like maybe you've met some of those church people before. And maybe you've bought into the lie. Somebody told you that, yeah, if you follow Jesus, you'll be satisfied. And then you found out that you're not. Your problems are still your problems. People are still people. Your boss is still your boss. So you began to question everything. You ran from him. Just need you to know the problem is not with God. The problem has been with people. Well, the church hurt me. I'm sure the church did hurt you. But God's not your problem. He's faithful and true. So maybe today what is happening is that God's calling you back to his heart. He's not calling you back to right behavior and right thinking. He's calling you back to right desires. And the ways you've seen the church handle the brokenness of the world has actually turned you off from following Jesus. sorry the church has acted that way. I think we just try to do the best we can with what we have. But there is a way maybe he's calling you to salvation today. To Actually give your heart to him, give your desires to him. This is the good news of the kingdom. Blessed are you. If you look at the world and see that something's wrong with it, but you don't know what to do with it, well, you'll find satisfaction in your pursuit. Blessed are you. Would you bow your heads, close your eyes this morning as we wrap up. I don't know where you find yourself today. I don't know what you've been longing for, About imagine, like most of us, we've been longing for satisfaction only to not find it. But there are testimonies in this room of people who have said, no, you know where I've found the most contentment and joy in my life? It's in being brokenhearted over the state of the world and the state of my own sin. Blessed are you who hunger and thirst for things to be made right again. Blessed are you who say, come Lord Jesus, Blessed are you who want a marriage restored, who want kids restored. Blessed are you. Blessed are you who are brokenhearted over the state of the world. You'll find satisfaction. You'll find contentment there, overflow. Maybe you're here today and you've never given your life to Jesus because you've been so turned off. Maybe he's disappointed you time and time again such a gift that you haven't found satisfaction in other things because now you can come back to him. Maybe the state of your own sin now is grieving you and so the call is to run to him to heal and forgive. It's the good news. You would admit your your brokenness that you need a savior. Believe that he is that savior and confess it with your mouth and with your life that he is Lord. You'll find wholeness and salvation. Father, today is your day. We love you. We're a people called by your name for your purposes and your glory. So God, would you break our hearts for what breaks yours? Remind us of our broken poverty of spirit. Help us to mourn over it. Reignite us with new life that leads us to meekness and a desperation to see your kingdom come and your will be done. And God, make us like Nehemiah. God, help us. Give us favor. must be part of the solution. In Jesus' name I pray.